Hello and welcome to Mostly Climate. My name is Dr. Doug McNeil and today I'm joined by co-host Dr. Rosie Oaks. Hi Rosie. Hi Doug. Recently, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its Working Group 2 report on impacts and adaptation. Today, we're going to focus on adaptation. We've got two really interesting guests from the Met Office, and we've also had a conversation with Dr. Saifal Islam about a flash flood early warning system that he's developed in Bangladesh. So first of all, Rosie, what is adaptation in the context of climate change? Remember in a previous episode, we talked about the risk from climate change, and it's made up of three components. So there's the hazard itself, which is the physical hazard, like a flood. And then there's the exposure to that. So where you live in relation to the hazard. So if you live on the banks of a river, you're more exposed than if you live up a hill to that flood. And the third thing is how vulnerable you are to that hazard. And that means how able are you to get out of the way? So if you maybe have access to a car or money so you could pay to stay somewhere else, if you knew there was a flood coming, you could move away. And that would make you less vulnerable than a community who wouldn't be able to do that. So essentially, when we talk about adaptation, we're talking about any kind of action you can take that would reduce both the exposure and the vulnerability of both humans and also ecosystems to climate change. And this can be done ahead of time. So that's called anticipatory. And that's when maybe money is released before the event happens, or it can be reactive. So you go in kind of after the event happens. So that's an interesting thing. You mentioned ecosystems and human systems. So there must be some different aspects of uh, of adaptation which you can take for human systems and for ecosystems, because I imagine you can plan in human systems, can't you? But ecosystems don't have the ability to to plan out things. That's right. So obviously with human systems, if you're thinking about something like designing an urban area or building a new building, you can think about how you could do that in a climate resilient way. I think the biggest thing with ecosystems is that human activities often disrupt how ecosystems function. And so it's trying to be cognizant of how we can leave the ecosystems in their most resilient form, I suppose, so that they have the best chance of responding to climate change. Okay, so how does adaptation or actions that we take around adaptation, how do they differ from mitigation and the actions that we might take around mitigation of climate change? Adaptation is responding to climate change that is happening or is projected to happen in the future, whereas mitigation is trying to stop any more climate change happening. So remember that the climate change that we're experiencing right now is caused by human emissions of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And as carbon dioxide levels increase, temperature increases. And it's this really amazingly simple relationship that we see in the climate system, which is huge and complex. But we know that as we increase carbon dioxide, the temperature also increases. So mitigation is really focused on reducing carbon dioxide emissions, such as those from cars and factories, and stabilizing the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that will help to stabilize our climate. So that's the tricky thing about adaptation. Obviously, the the sooner we do it, the less climate change that has happened, the easier that job will be. But when you think of the types of adaptation, sometimes there are limits to what could be done. Have we got any examples of adaptation that we can talk about? 
Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Doug, because today we're going to talk about a really broad range of ways that we can adapt. And we have examples today from both the UK and internationally. So I'm really hoping that by the end of the episode, we've painted a picture of what adaptation can look like. So our first guest today is Lizzie Fuller. Lizzie, could you explain what you do at the Met Office? I am the secondee to DEFRA. DEFRA stands for the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Um, so my role is a climate science communicator. So I try to help DEFRA make the most of the great science that we do at the Met Office and also bring back to the Met Office understanding of what government need from us. Our second guest today is Dr. Joe Darren. Hi, Joe. Hi, Doug. What do you do at the Met Office, Joe? So I'm a science manager in the International Climate Services team. Uh, I also have a joint position at the University of Bristol through the Met Office Academic Partnership. Uh, and my role is really as working as, a, I guess, an applied climate scientist, but working with partners and different uh, stakeholders to develop and deliver climate services, primarily focusing in Africa and Asia. Lizzie, is adaptation something that the UK and particularly DEFRA, who you're seconded to, uh, is focused on? Definitely. Um, adaptation is a really key focus for the UK and increasingly so. So we've seen through our COP presidency recently that resilience to climate change is a really important agenda. So DEFRA actually have the lead on climate change in the UK and it's a requirement under the Climate Change Act of 2008 for us to plan how we're going to adapt to climate change. And in 2023, DEFRA will be releasing the new National Adaptation Programme, which will highlight all of the ways that the UK is planning to adapt to climate change in the next five years. The CCRA, the Climate Change Risk Assessment, could you just explain how that might feed into the National Adaptation Plan? The CCC are the, the Climate Change Committee, and under the five-year statutory process for adapting to climate change, the CCC write a report on the climate change risks. Um, so it's a science report about the risks that we expect from climate change, and then the government have to provide a response to that and then outline the adaptation actions of the NAP. So these two are directly interlinked and it's a really great way of seeing how the science that the CCC provide and the Met Office provide will then feed into that adaptation action over the next five years. It's great to hear about the top level plans for adaptation, Lizzie. Can you give us an example of what adaptation looks like in the UK? Will people have seen it before? Where could they have a look at that? Yeah, absolutely. So the key goal for adaptation is that it should be everywhere and it should be a part of every decision that we make. So an adaptation action can be something as simple as having blinds on your window so that on a really hot day you can close the blinds and keep the heat out. But there are other much bigger examples of adaptation. So the Thames Barrier has been a really long-standing project. The barrier currently protects 1.4 million people and it protects around £320 billion worth of property and commerce in the London area. The Met Office provided sea level projections um, which help us understand the risk from flooding to the London area in the future. And um, this has helped inform the adaptation planning out to 2100. So the Thames barrier as it currently stands, we think will protect the area up to 2050. But this is a really great example of adaptive planning 
because the Environment Agency have worked with the London area to look at possible adaptation options for the future. So, for example, if we end up in a situation where we have a high rate of sea level rise under, say, a warmer emission scenario, then they're leaving options available. So, for example, the Environment Agency have protected land that means that a future barrier could be built should sea level continue to rise. I think this is one of those interesting cases where the science that the metaphors have produced and looking at the sea level may well have saved the UK government some money because some of my colleagues worked on this and I think that they basically helped the UK government understand that the highest sea level projections were not quite as likely as they thought they were. So essentially, we've got an adaptation plan now that can change as we get more information in. <laughs> essentially, yeah, we, we didn't need to build a new Thames barrier straight away. Actually, there were these other options that you could that you could use uh, yeah. that weren't as expensive as just rebuilding the entire Thames barrier. That's exactly it. So they've left the options open so that they can make that decision in around the 2040s. So they know that building a new barrier might cost between six and eight billion pounds, which is a lot lower cost than the cost of the impacts of the barrier. Thanks, Lizzie. It's really interesting to hear about something that's going on here in the UK. And I really like the idea of an adaptable adaptation response. But I want to pass over to Joe just to see how does this compare to adaptation that's going on in other parts of the world and specifically in other cities that we're working in internationally? Yeah, it's definitely interesting to hear about the sort of latest on on what London is doing and, and cities in the UK. I mean, some of the challenges that are faced in the UK are shared in other parts of the world where we're having to think about what are these high end scenarios of climate change that we really must be aware of. But of course, in many of the context that we're working in, particularly in uh, sort of low and middle income countries, the resources there to think long term to 2100 just aren't there. And the, and the rate of growth of cities as well, um, particularly cities we've been working in in Africa, means that there are other pressing non-climate challenges which complicate things and mean it's it's harder to address these these climate change risks when the cities aren't as well adapted to current climate as they might be. So Joe, what are the major risks that people that you're working with are focusing? Are the hazards different in Africa than they are in the UK? And if they are, how are they different and how are people approaching that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think some of the hazards are similar. So flooding is a key risk and we see that in a number of cities and issues related to water availability and water scarcity. And again, these are issues that we face in, in UK cities as well. But then there are other climate extremes, so tropical cyclones, for example, which are in some parts of the world becoming more frequent. And certainly there's information that they could become in more intense and have more rainfall associated with them in the future. But I think the main difference is more the vulnerability and the exposure side. So the vulnerability of communities in cities in, in again, particularly the lower middle income countries can be vastly different, particularly informal settlements in rapidly urbanising cities. Thanks, Joe. And we're going to be learning more about Lusaka, where Joe has been working later on in the show. For now, I want to go back to Lizzie and seeing as we've just talked about vulnerability internationally, thinking back in the UK, who are the most vulnerable populations in the UK or what are the most vulnerable regions and what are the government worried about in terms of vulnerability? So the Climate Change Committee outlined um, eight key priority risks for the UK. 
And the one that I think stands out the most and is resonating with people a lot is the risk to human health, well-being and productivity from increased exposure to heat um, in homes and other buildings. Wow, heat, Lizzie, that is not the one I thought you were going to come up with. Not normally something that people think about when they think of the UK. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes people think heat waves in the summer and trips to the beach, but it is something that we really need to consider. So, for example, the UK CP projections suggest that by 2050, a summer as hot as the one in 2018, where we have those really big heat waves, could be as common as not. So it could occur every other year, and that's really significant. For example, the CCC have suggested that the number of heat-related deaths could triple from today's levels without adaptation, so from around 2,000 per year to around 7,000. So it's a pretty significant increase. And the effects of heat also aren't equal across the population. So those who are most vulnerable can experience the worst impacts. So, for example, the elderly and those under the age of five And the CCC also highlighted that those who are from lower income backgrounds and also ethnic minorities can be worse impacted because, for example, the report showed that they have less access to green spaces, which can be really important way of adapting is to move outside to cooler areas. You've mentioned green spaces there, and that's clearly not available to everyone. Could you tell us some of the other adaptations that we might use given that we know who the most vulnerable people are you know how do we target those adaptations yeah it's a really good question and there are lots of things that we can do and the nhs have just released a national heat wave strategy and so some of the things it highlights in there is that people should help those that are the most vulnerable so for example you should go and visit your elderly relatives and make sure that they're staying cool but there's also some really simple measures that that we can take. So drawing curtains, drawing blinds, things like opening windows can be really important. And in the longer term, we can try and take steps to retrofit our buildings. So, for example, having green roofs or white roofs can be really important. And local councils are working really hard on this in the local area as well. So, for example, um, Belfast have a really great initiative called the One Million Trees Project, where they're giving away trees to local people to plant where they can. And they're hoping to plant one million trees in the city by 2035. How about when we're looking to the future, Lizzie? When towns and cities are building new buildings, are they building them resilient for future heat? Or is this currently not really considered in that process? It's something that is being considered more and more and is really important. We're planning to build 300,000 new homes each year. So it's really important that these are designed to be resilient to heat. And this is really important so that we don't experience lock-in. So if we design our houses now to be resilient to heat, it's a lot cheaper than retrofitting them later. In fact, it's four times cheaper to build them to be resilient to heat than it is to retrofit them later. As the owner of a Victorian house, I'm sitting up in the loft here and I know that within a month it will be too hot for me to be sitting up here because there's no insulation, freezing in the winter and boiling in the summer. So I'll I'll declare that uh, when Joe started at the Met Office, I took him to several visits to hospitals. We were going out and we were talking to climate change to hospital managers. It was a really interesting experience for me because uh, we were going to the NHS. This is a number of years ago now. I won't I won't give away your age, Joe, uh, but it's a number of years now. And we would go to the hospital managers and we would say, have you thought about climate change? And the hospital managers would say, 
yes, we have. And here is how we're reducing our, our carbon footprint. And we would say that's great. But have you thought about adaptation to climate change? And it was clear at that time that the hospital managers had not thought about adaptation to climate change and particularly heat. What's changed since we went out and spoke to those hospital managers? I think a few things have changed. I think the pace of climate change and the and the records that we see broken almost on a yearly basis are being felt by people. And I think this is something that if we had those conversations now, we'd be having quite a different conversation. And also the science has advanced. So we're able to do you know rapid attribution studies. And that was thinking back to the, the 2003 heat wave in Europe, which really propelled that sort of area of science and had significant impacts on the UK and France and elsewhere. And since then, people have really woken up to, to these risks. Um, but these risks are also faced in other parts of the world. I know we're hearing from Saiful Islam about work and early warning systems in Bangladesh and South Asia and the recent heat wave, India and Pakistan in particular, have shown unprecedented heat waves um, that really are breaking records. And so these issues are being faced everywhere. Um, and so we can definitely share learning across the world on how to develop heat action plans and integrate the science that we have around future heat waves. I think sharing the knowledge around the world is going to be so important. We're all adapting to this at the same time. The more we can share information around the world, the better it's going to be. Can you talk to us about your project in Manchester? Yeah, of course. So I also work in the urban climate services team in the Met Office, and we've been producing an urban climate service called the City Pack, which helps to inform cities about their local climate using the probabilistic projections from UKCP. And one of the risks that Manchester is facing is flooding, particularly due to the warmer, wetter winters that we expect to experience in the future. And in our work with Manchester City Council, we've learned about the kind of adaptation measures that they're taking to address to this, particularly in local communities. And I think that the example that they've shared with us of the West Gorton Community Park is also a really nice example of where local adaptation to risk can have co-benefits. So the example is a nature-based solution. So in the West Gorton community area, they have built a park and it's called the park that drinks water. So it has swales and permeable paving that reduces runoff from floods during high rainfall events. It's a really lovely space for the community. They can use it for recreation, they can use it for sport, and it also acts as a cooling area for heat waves. So it can help with multiple different impacts I really love the idea of an urban park actually helping out with flood risk, but also making space for the community, improving biodiversity and air quality. And I think when you think about climate change, it can be so scary and overwhelming. But as soon as you envisage a future world, which is actually better than the one you live in right now because of the adaptation that you put in place, it makes me feel more hopeful, at least. So um, thanks for telling us about that. Earlier, I spoke to Professor Saiful Islam from the Institute of Water and Flood Management at Bangladesh University of Engineering and Technology, who's a lead author of the most recent IPCC climate change report from Working Group One. Now, Professor Islam has been involved in developing a flash flood early warning system, which is a really important project that's supported by the International Fund for Agriculture Development, which is a UN agency that delivers adaptation projects across the world, supporting millions of rural communities who are on the front line of climate change. 
I began by asking him to describe the flooding impacts that communities across the Bangladeshi Delta have had to face. Bangladesh is a delta of three major rivers, Ganges, Brahmaputra, and Meghna. We call it uh, GBM Delta. We are known for floods, but that is a normal flood when less than 20% of area every year is inundated. That's our normal flood. We call it a flood that is more than 20%. This kind of flood in the past, we saw about seven to 10 years. It's recurrent. But unfortunately, uh, we saw over the last five years, we saw that it is occurring almost every year. And some cases, they break the records in terms of magnitude, in terms of duration, and in terms of occurrence time. So we saw recently a flood just before the monsoon season, which damaged many embankments and houses, street, and Silet City has been underwater for many, many days. So the damage and impact is now more than the past. Bangladesh, 1991. There was catastrophic flooding from Cyclone 2B, which resulted in 150,000 people losing their lives. 10 million people were homeless, and there were a million head of cattle lost. These are massive impacts on this community. Since then, the flood management adaptation initiatives across the Bay of Bengal region have helped reduce the loss of life. Yet, as Professor Seifel stresses, there are still millions of livelihoods which continue to be acutely impacted as climate change injects more energy and more intensity into storms. And as the seasonal rhythms of the monsoon rains become distorted and unpredictable, these impacts could become worse still. Building resilient infrastructure is key, but there are non-structural measures which also play a vital role, as timing is crucial. Professor Seifel explains. There are also measures like early warning system, which can inform people to better prepare for the disaster. In Northeast Bangladesh, with the funding of early warning flash flood forecasting system, that has never before. So Bangladesh Water Development Board now implemented and provide early warning well before flash flood. And that helps the people to harvest the crop. But unfortunately, if the flash flood is early, that becomes more difficult because at that time, uh, the crop is not ready for harvesting. But normal condition, this new system would uh, benefit the area. So there is a two sides. We can inform the people, but also become uh, challenged by this early occurrence. So this type of adaptation is all about knowledge sharing. And if we can get information to people on time, then that can help save lives just as much as a barrier would. Yes, this is very important for the people which are living there. A couple of days early, they can start because now we have a harvesting machine which can very quickly harvest the crop. And this is the only crop because this area in the monsoon season, water is everywhere. So uh, when they lost this crop, actually they lost the food supply for the whole year. So it's very vital. Let's just put this into perspective. The population of Bangladesh is about 168 million. The country is divided into eight divisions. So Professor Seifel and his team's early warning flood forecasting system reaches and potentially benefits about 22 million people. To put that into context, that's about a third of the population of the UK. 
Professor Seifel talks about how this novel approach has been welcomed by local communities, but there's still more work to be done. They want to increase the lead time, which would reduce the risk further. We need collaboration, particularly from neighboring country, India, so that we can share the information, make it more accurate and increase the lead time. So then it will be more and more useful for the community. Professor Saiful Islam, Director at the Institute of Water and Flood Management at the University of Bangladesh. Now we're going to go to Southern Africa and hear from Dr. Joe Darren about working with communities to increase adaptation and resilience. Joe, can you tell us a little bit about the Fractal Project, maybe starting with what does Fractal even stand for? Fractal, in this case, has nothing to do with mathematical fractals, but is a as an acronym for a project which is Future Resilience of African Cities and Lands. And this is a project that was part of a, a program called Future Climate for Africa, funded by Natural Environment Research Council and Department for International Development, which is now Foreign Commonwealth Development Office. The project was was led by the University of Cape Town, but had a large number of partners across Africa and Southern Africa, uh, and internationally as well, including the Met Office. So what's the basis of the work that you're doing in Fractal? The emphasis of the work is on building resilience to climate variability and climate change in cities, particularly thinking about the five to 40 year time horizon. And we focused on cities in in Southern Africa, um, and a number of cities were involved, but the main focus was on Windhoek in Namibia, Maputo in Mozambique, and Lusaka in Zambia. One of the main real uh, novel elements of Fractal was that it was really truly transdisciplinary, really thinking about cities as a, as a system and working in a, a kind of holistic way. So in practice, this meant bringing physical scientists, hydrologists, human and physical geographers and, and social scientists together, but also working with embedded researchers. So these are researchers that sit partly in an academic institution, but then partly in the city institutions. So the city councils and um, departments responsible for kind of budgets and action on climate change. The main mechanism for, for bringing these people together was the learning lab concept. So this is a, a highly participatory collaborative workshop in these learning labs. People are empowered to go beyond their areas of expertise and really work together to co-explore and think through problems and potential solutions. What did you learn by bringing all these different groups of people together? We didn't start with the climate science and I think quite often we do. We think we need to start with what are the future projections of climate change and how does that frame the discussions. But in fractal we really started with what are the pressing issues that are facing people in the city? What is the reality for them? And this included residents as well as the city decision makers. A big part of fractal was really listening and engaging uh, and trying to put ourselves uh, in the shoes of those who are making decisions and all the complexities that involve. So to do that within this learning lab, we used um, different kind of techniques like role play, but also games and things that helped bring some fun to the environment. Because although it's a you know serious topic, actually, when people are having fun, they kind of learn more and share more and open up so we can really get a better understanding of the realities that are being faced. Bring it back to the climate. I know you said that we don't start with the climate, but you know you start with the people who have vulnerabilities, decisions they have to make, uh, and then you come through. What what were the interactions between climate and what their challenges were that really came out from those things? There were differences in the different cities. So, for example, in Maputo, which has more of a tropical climate um, and experiences tropical cyclones, the key risks were quite different to those facing Windhoek in the western part of Southern Africa, which is, has a much drier climate and issues around water availability became much more of an issue. 
however, the, the cities really did um, have commonality in that water was the key risk in, in its various forms. So either too much water or too little water and managing those water resources was a key risk that was common across all of the cities that we engaged with. And also that was because during the project, which ran from 2015 to 2021, there was a an extreme drought that affected Southern Africa. So we didn't anticipate that at the start of the project, but during the project, a number of the cities were dealing with a, a major drought, a multi-year drought. And so this really focused the minds of people in the cities on how to respond to this, both in the present, but also planning for the future. So Joe, we know that every city has its particular vulnerabilities and, and that will drive its needs for climate adaptation. Can you explain um, about Lusaka and the context for Lusaka? I know that's particularly uh, important for this project. For Lusaka, which is the, you know, the capital city of, of Zambia, it's a rapidly growing city. So it was uh, 100,000 people back in 1960 and it's more than 3 million people today and is projected to be 5 million within the next 20 years. 70% of the city population live in formal settlements and many of those are in the south and the west of the city which is land that sits on impermeable bedrock so the water table is quite close to the surface. So it's um, not so much an issue of making people aware of the risks, it's more a case of how to deal with those risks and giving people options and choices. And of course, this then comes into the issue of how do you integrate climate change adaptation with fundamental development and city planning issues. And this is where it gets quite complex. It becomes a very difficult uh, challenge to solve. So really, there is no single solution. Engineering solutions are probably part of the solution and those have been tried but are very expensive. But then there's also other solutions around how people live and the kind of livelihoods that they have and how they can actually live with the, um, the landscape and the flooding risks that, that are there. Um, what new climate science are people interested? What information do they need from climate science? There's a real interest in improved resolution, but this information and data sets requires quite a lot of expertise and analysis to extract the meaning and the, the kind of relevance of that information. So there's a real challenge in going from this kind of uh, advanced climate modelling work to then making that information relevant to cities. Lizzie, uh, Joe mentioned high resolution data projections of future climate change being useful. I understand that they might be useful in, in a heat context as well. Yeah, definitely. So it's really interesting hearing Jay say that because we're finding the same thing in UK cities that people are really interested in in high resolution information. So in the UK, we're really lucky that the UK CP projections are available at 2.2 kilometre scale. So in the Urban Climate Services team, the team have been using these projections to look at heat vulnerability across the city. So they're mapping future projections of heat across the city and working with cities to map other elements um, so that you can look at vulnerabilities. So, for example, we're working with the cities where they're providing data on the housing stock and the different types of population in the city so that we can really begin to explore risk across the city landscape. We've learned a lot about adaptation today. I don't think we've solved all the problems, but we have heard about everything from nature-based solutions to big barriers to early warning systems and bringing people together to solve challenges. So before we leave, I'm going to go around everybody in the room and ask what's the one take-home thing that you want people to remember or know about adaptation? I think it's really important to say that the UK um, risk assessment highlighted that 
adaptation action has actually failed to keep pace with the worsening reality of the climate risk. So we're seeing an increasing gap between current action and the action that is needed. I also think it's really important to emphasise that adaptation action taken early has a lot of really incredible benefits. There are also opportunities to be made from adaptation. For example, the uh, crop growing season will increase as conditions get warmer. So yeah, action now will mean that we can make the most of those opportunities too. Joe, we'll come to you next. I think the real lesson from working in the Fractal Project is that to help find adaptation solutions that are really effective and sustainable, it needs to be through a really inclusive and participatory process that includes all of those who have knowledge, and that includes scientists and experts in different disciplines, but it also includes residents and those who are kind of responsible for making the decisions. So it is really through working together that we can find those long-term solutions. And I think another key aspect as well is that climate change does really exacerbate or amplify some of the challenges that are already being faced, but it can be an opportunity as well, and it focuses the minds and brings people together to solve climate change challenges. So in the context of Lusaka, but also other cities involved in Fractal, it really enabled people to think about how do we address climate and development challenges together to make more resilient cities. And it's been a really positive experience for all those involved, and hence why we're, we're looking at future ways to continue those collaborations in, in future projects. Thanks, Joe. That's great to hear because I know we've talked about this before, about the importance of having everybody in the conversation. I know that was a big thing that they highlighted at COP26, but it's great to hear from your project about what happens when it works and how we can keep doing that in the future. Doug, I'll come to you next. What have you learned about adaptation today or what's your take home message? Well, maybe I'll think about the gaps, actually, Rosie, because this has been a super interesting program for me. It's great to hear from people who are working directly on adaptation. I think particularly we might have a slight human systems bias on this little program here. And it would be great, I think, if in the future, maybe we think about ecosystems and other planetary systems when it comes to uh, adaptation. So I think we could revisit this. It's been really interesting to hear. Um, so I guess there's light and shade, isn't it? We've heard some real positives. Maybe finish with a, a slight caveat, a warning. Things that worry me as a climate scientist and a parent, a human, I think there are limits to adaptation. And maybe we haven't talked about those as much, and particularly when it comes to ecosystems. So I think, you know, it's hard for ecosystems to adapt. And I think as climate change gets worse, and particularly if we don't mitigate some of the worst impacts of climate change, it's going to be really difficult to adapt. Thanks, Doug. I think that's a really important point, linking the fact that if we mitigate against future climate change, it will be easier, it will be less expensive for us to adapt to the climate that we're currently living in. The thing for me that I have learned today, uh, you know, I've always worried about climate change is such a big challenge and people feel overwhelmed and don't know what to do, including myself. And one of my favourite pointers I've learned today was from Lizzie saying that adaptation can be as small as putting blinds up. I mean, I feel like, great, that's awesome. So I might put that on my project list, do some adaptation for my house. I'm going to buy some blinds. Currently don't have any, probably should get some. <laughs> that's a good so idea. So hopefully this is there, inspired there are our list. Exactly, there are co-benefits. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. As much as like planting something in your garden or putting blinds up, everybody can take action and start adaptation on a personal scale while we put things in place to do it at a much larger scale as well. So thanks very much to our guest today, Lizzie Fuller and Joe Darren. Joe, I understand that Fractal have a podcast that people can get more information on as well. 
the Climate System Analysis Group at the University of Cape Town, who led on the project, have a podcast called Climate Frontiers, and there's a series of uh, podcasts looking at the different elements of Fractal there. Our sincere gratitude as well to Dr. Saiful Islam. Co-hosts today were Dr. Rosie Oakes and me, Dr. Doug McNeil. Mostly Climate was produced by Claire Nazir and Graham Madge. It was edited by Adrian Holloway. Mostly Climate is a podcast by the UK Met Office. For the latest weather conditions where you are, download the Met Office weather app.